Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Did anyone catch the fly that was buzzing around? (laughs) For those of you who are listening at home, we have a guest this evening. We have a bodhisattva fly that's, I kept thinking it was going to land somewhere, and it's like, God, it feels close, but I didn't want to flinch. I was like, okay, just going to be equanimous, equanimous. But then there was a part of me that was like, are you going to land on my fate? Like, where's the landing? (laughs) Flies are, flies and mosquitoes, great meditation objects. (laughs) I'd be curious if there is throughout history, you know, people who've been enlightened by being equanimous to a mosquito or a bug or a snake or something, for me it would have to be a spider. That would be a big one. But we did have this infamous retreat once that at Brightonbush Hot Springs, and were you there? Yeah, where we there were so many flies, like everywhere in the hall, outside the hall, and. They were just all over you. There was no getting around it. You were just meditating, and there'd be like a bunch just all over you, just crawling around, and so everyone was trying to meditate with the flies. (laughs) Good times. (laughs) We didn't have to pay extra for that or anything. It was just bonus round. The fly round was quite spectacular. Well, welcome back, my friends. Thanks so much for hanging out with us on this lovely spring evening. Good to see all the folks at home. Welcome all those folks on the podcast. Today I wanted to just dive in a little bit to talk about the three characteristics. And there was something, I can't remember what triggered it. There was something a couple weeks ago when Ayadama Deepa was talking And that wasn't the topic that she had, but there was something in her Dharma talk that stimulated this whole thought I was having about the three characteristics. And I've been thinking about it ever since, and I can't remember why I started thinking about it, it, but it's been on my mind for the last few weeks. And since it is a major list in the Dharma, I can't go wrong with the three characteristics. So I thought I would reintroduce ourselves to the The three characteristics, which are, of course, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. We could do a a day-long on each of these topics, but we'll just talk about them briefly tonight. I'll offer you some frameworks to get in touch with these. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta is considered to be the foundational perceptions or frameworks for insight in the Dharma. So of all those tens of thousands of pages of the Pali Sutta, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, that is the basic 
focus for insight, the concepts, if you will, foundations to cultivate insight. Of all that information in there, these three little words are the foundation for Buddhist insight. So I wanted to define them this evening just a little bit, and I'm hoping in the definition it can give you just kind of a reminder of why they're important. And then we'll talk about, if we have time, some of the misconceptions of them, which I think can be helpful as well. The first one is impermanence. Anicca, impermanence. Changing phenomena. I think what's interesting about impermanence is that it is kind of obvious that reality is in flux, right? <laughs> Does anyone not notice that, <laughs> that the world is changing? Just so we're all on the same page. <laughs> so impermanence, everything is changing. And I think it can, be, it can be helpful just to focus on change in our meditation, just superficial change, everything from the weather or just things that are changing in our life. We can focus on those things, but I always like to remind us that change is like the first level, if you will, the first kind of doorway that you walk through when we talk about impermanence. And there's a couple other layers that sometimes are easier to forget about that I think is helpful to, to recall. It's not as much that things are changing, which is somewhat obvious, but it's what is so about the world because everything's changing. Because existence is in flux, a bunch of other things happen to us because of Anicca, because of the impermanence. So one of the things to remember is that because, that, because everything is changing, the world is not reliable. We can't count on it because it's always moving underneath our feet. So when we say that impermanence is something that we're meditating on, one of the things that we're actually meditating on is the lack of reliability of the fact that existence is always in flux, is always moving. We can't hang our hat on something that's constantly changing. So while, yes, we focus on the fact of change, we also want to remind ourselves that the world is not stable. It's not constant. It cannot be trusted <laughs> because it keeps changing. So even if you can trust it for a while, that doesn't mean it's not going to turn into something else, right? And so that's part of what the Buddha is pointing towards. It's like the fact of anicca results in a life where we can never really get a firm handle on it because it's always shifting. It's always shifting. We like to try and pretend for a while, and we can have moments or years where it feels stable, but the reality is it's always changing. Even with those moments of stability or the illusion of stability in different ways, it's, it's shifting, it's shifting, it's changing, it's sneaky, it's sneaky that way, right? Oh, look, everything's stable and going well. Boom, something breaks. It's like, oh, right, it's not permanent, it's not stable, I can't rely on it. So there's this reminder that it, it can't be trusted, it's not reliable. Part of our inability to have a deep confidence in an ever-changing world is that there's this subtle fear and anxiety we have knowing that at some point we could wake up and something could be different, or that we can move into the next moment and something would be lost, changed, gone forever. So part of our consciousness knows this. Part of our consciousness as animals knows, oh my gosh, okay, it's not stable, it's not stable. And we try to outwit it, right? And so in the face of the impermanence, 
the mind's like, oh, but I'll make it permanent, right? We try to make it solid. <laughs> we try to make, sort of like bribing reality to be solid and constant and consistent and trustworthy. So there's a part of us that is anxious and fearful because it knows that at any given moment we might trip over our own feet. And then there's a part of us that's convinced, oh, but if I just identify hard enough to my views and my body, maybe I won't age. Maybe I won't get sick. You know, you have those long periods of time sometimes where, <laughs> where you're feeling okay, you're feeling well, things are going good, a good mood, and all of a sudden sadness arises. And you're like, damn, I thought that round was permanent. Nope, can't be trusted, can't be relied on. So when we talk about impermanence, we want to remember that that's the underlying thing. It's that lack of reliability and the desire of the mind to make it reliable and all the things we do with our life to try to give ourselves the pretense that we've got it under control. Oh, it's under control. My friendships are good and job is good and kids are doing well and I'm paying my debts or doing this thing and hobbies and, and all of a sudden something goes like, oh, something happens. Some relationship goes awry or something happens with our family or friends or job or politics or God, someone tweets something and the day is ruined. Whatever, whatever the case may be, it's instability, right? It's just that constant instability. So it's not just that things change. It's, it's what it does to us because it's constantly changing and how we try to make it not so to be that way. Another aspect of, of the Anicca is that it's not predictable. Because things are constantly changing, we can only predict so far out into our lives how things are going to go for us. I imagine if I took a poll and I asked you, how much of your life turned out exactly as you had planned it to be? And it was totally predictable. You're like, yep, this is exactly what I wanted. 100%, just as I had planned from day one. Here it is. Just doing it like... Come on, like that's not how Nietzsche works. We, li we live that way, right? Especially early on, we're like, oh yeah, I've got this. And then reality's like, yeah, nice try. <laughs> this space is owned by impermanence and it must remind us of such things, right? So the predictability is another part of this, is that it's not predictable, but we try to predict. And we have to do that to be sane, right? We have to pretend that we can predict at least a ways out. And we roll the dice on certain things, a career and family and love relationships and things. And so we got to play the game. But the game is rigged in the favor of impermanence, which means everything is going to pass away. Eventually, the house wins, right? It's not stable. But we do our best to live in this world of instability. One of the things I always find funny about predictability, I, I often mention this, uh, is how little we can predict about the weather, right? I find this so interesting. So what fascinates me is the weather is our environment. It's where we live. We live in the environment. And we're good to predict it for about 10 days out. Beyond that, we're, we don't know what's going to happen in our environment with the weather. I mean, that's just, cra like, that's just crazy that we can't know past that, right? So when you look on weather apps, you'll see, you'll see a five-day forecast and a seven-day forecast, right? So a seven-day forecast is about 80% accurate. Pretty, pretty good for a human being living in a Nietzsche. It's like, all right, seven days. It might be sunny when I go to the beach or when I go out. It's like, okay, I've got some, some like, so, and if you go five days, it's like 90, it's like pretty accurate five days out. So for creatures living in a Nietzsche, we got about a five-day window where we're accurate with what's going on, just with the environment, which could wash us away at any given point in time, right? So you have like, <laughs> we have five to seven days. 
10 days out, it's a 50%. It's a toss of a coin. 10 days from now, no one in this room has any clue with all the science and everything that we are, what's going to happen with the weather. There's just no way of knowing. That's how accurate and impermanent things are. We gotta, you got about 10 days, and that's all you get. <laughs> so I just think that's funny, right? That's the impermanence of it. We're living in this world where we can't even know what the weather's going to be like in 10 days. There's no way to know. We can guess, but we just don't know. We don't get that as beings in this kind of world. So things change. Because they're changing, they're not reliable. Now, because they're not reliable, we end up with pain. We end up with pain. The body, not always reliable. Pain. Heartbreak, not always reliable. Relationships, not always reliable. Pain, right? Physical pain, emotional pain. We can have things, but then we lose them. Or we want things, and we can't have them. Or we can't have them back again. We wake up one day and something breaks and it's like, oh man, I just got that thing. Or I really cherish that thing and now broken, right? So because it's not reliable and always changing, then there's pain. So human beings live in a world of constant friction. There's constant unpredictability, lack of reliability, and discontent. And that's where the Dharma starts. That's why this is one of the doorways to freedom because it's such a big deal for us. This is where so much of the next one that we talk about, dukkha, comes from. This pain from the lack of reliability and how we try to make it reliable in spite of it all. I was thinking the other day when I was thinking of this talk <laughs> about disappointment, right? And so because things are always changing and we can't always get what we want, human beings experience disappointment. And I was thinking, I bet you could go anywhere, anywhere in the world and speak to another human being and if you talk to them about being disappointment, disappointed, they'll know exactly what you mean. No translation necessary. It's like, I've never heard it. I, I, can't, I have a hard time imagining a human being would say, that's fascinating. You know, in our culture, we don't have disappointment. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Please explain. We're, we're never disappointed here, you know? So disappointment, it's just, it's a par for the course, which is why a Nietzsche is one of the major characteristics or frameworks that we use in the Dharma because disappointment <laughs> comes right out of things that change. We can't not be disappointed, and we all know what it feels like to be disappointed. That's another thing about the way the Buddha describes dukkha. He describes it in ways that we can all relate, no matter who we are or where we're from. He's talking about the essence of discontent that we have as humans, not as a particular culture or a particular circumstance, but disappointment. Similar with like heartbreak. I have a hard time imagining that human beings, no matter where they've been, haven't had a heart broken at some point or another, where we'd have to describe how that feels to be brokenhearted or to miss someone or long to be with someone. It's just dukkha, right? We know, we know these things intuitively. So impermanence gives rise to all of these. The second one is dukkha. And dukkha is translated as suffering, but I, I've grown to more appreciate the translation as stress. Stress and discontent. Suffering is kind of, for me, a little heavy-handed. It can be suffering, but it's also just stress, the friction of the day. Just walking through the world. We're in motion. The world's in motion. Other people are in motion around us, and there's friction. There's always this friction between us, our hearts, other hearts, our minds, other minds. There's this friction because we're moving through, right? We're always moving through. The interesting thing about dukkha is that 
dukkha doesn't actually exist in the world. Not the way that meditation cushion does or this piece of paper, right? Where does dukkha live? Yeah, right? In the heart, heart and mind. It's the only place that dukkha lives, in fact. It's, it, has, it has a limited ecosystem. <laughs> like, it's not like other animals where you can transplant them. Dukkha lives in only one environment, the heart, right? The heart-mind. That is where it lives and thrives. You try and take it out of there, can't exist. Doesn't, it can't even exist outside. It only exists in one place, inside the human being, in the heart, in the mind. And even more specifically, it lives and is born between where the heart and mind make contact with the world. Contact, contact, contact. Dukkha is a relationship. It exists in relationship between our heart and mind in the world, in that space where we make contact as we move through. We're impermanent, the world's impermanent, and when we hit up against, there's contact and there's the dukkha exists right there. Can't exist anywhere else. It only exists in that relational space between our hearts and minds and the world. That's its ecosystem. That's where it can exist. And it's the result of the way our hearts and minds meet the present moment, right? Dukkha arises from the way our hearts and minds orient to the contact of the world. You can also say that dukkha is what we fabricate from all of the sense contact that's coming in. All of this experiential stuff is coming in and we're interpreting and we're creating and experiencing and boom, dukkha. Dukkha's right there. Dukkha's in the center of the soup. So we are fabricating dukkha. It's something that is created by our hearts and minds. It's the only place that it lives. It doesn't live anywhere else, which is good news because if it could exist out of there and run around the room, then we'd have to go chase it down to figure out how to stop it. We don't have to do that, right? It can't get out of its cage and hide in a corner or do something else. It exists in our relationship to the world, which means we can transcend it because we are in relationship to it. We change our relationship, we change the experience. It can't get out and do other things. Now, pain, different beast. Pain exists out and pain is out in the world, right? Pain is that contact. The dukkha is inside, which is how we interpret that experience of discontent. That, so dukkha is the inside. The pain is a different animal. Pain exists out in the, in the world, meaning that we can fall down and trip and have pain because that's just the nature of being a human being. Whether we suffer from falling down, that's the dukkha. That's completely how our heart meets the experience in the moment. One moment, we might laugh it off, right? No dukkha. Another time, we might get pissed off and then dukkha. So how we meet the moment is how the dukkha arises in our hearts and minds. And because of that, that's why liberation can happen, because it's in the relationship. If it was a thing outside of ourselves, Getting over it would be dependent on outside circumstances. We would not necessarily be able to free ourselves from it. We might be able to contain it in some way, but because it actually is in the heart and it's our hearts, we can do something about it. That's the good news about dukkha is that it is in the heart, so therefore it's our heart and we can do something about it. We can change the way we relate to ourselves and we relate to the world, and then we can essentially transcend the dukkha. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anatta, not self. Oh, man, this is a tough one. <laughs> I keep thinking someday I'm going to be able to understand it clearer. 
or at least talk about it clearer. It's just a tough one, not self. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'm only going to talk about the basics tonight just to define it for us. super important to remember that the Buddha never says that there is not a self. This is huge. The Buddha never says there is no self. That statement, not in the Dharma. The Buddha never says there is no self, at least in the traditional teachings. What the Buddha says is not self, which is a category of experience, a category of teachings. The reason the Buddha doesn't say there is no self is that the Buddha had a series of questions and he said, if we ask these questions, it's going to create confusion and it's not going to lead to our long-term happiness and well-being. So the Buddha had this understanding that the mind can create questions and conceptualizations and curiosities that can drag us down a rabbit hole and we, we can't get back out. It's like it becomes philosophy or psychology or whatever it is, but it doesn't lead to happiness. And the Buddha's concern was, can I be happy? Not can I locate the self. That wasn't his dream, was to find the self. His dream was to find out whether or not there was long-term happiness and well-being that's not conditioned. That was the quest. And so in that quest, there was this insight, oh, I can't locate some essence. It's change, change, change. All the way down, it's impermanent. I can't locate any sense of solidity within myself within my mind, within my heart, within my body, within the world. So that's where we get the not-self teachings at their base. The Buddha actually, <laughs> I wish I could do this. I don't know how he actually did this, but the Buddha would ignore people, right? So <laughs> I wish I could do it skillfully and be like, what, I'm just a Dharma teacher. What? Just being, I'm, just do, I'm just teaching the Dharma. I'm not ignoring you, I'm offering you wisdom. So the, <laughs> the Buddha... <laughs> The Buddha, that was fun. actually funny. I just completely made that up. Um, the, Buddha, the Buddha ignored questions that he thought did not lead to the, the actual Dharma, right? He basically, people would ask questions. He's like, I'm not going to answer that. It's not helpful. I'm not going to answer that. And people would get frustrated. But he's like, we're not going to talk about that because it's not relevant to your happiness. Or we're only going to talk about things that are relevant. So two things he said were not good questions. One was the the question, is there a self or is there not a self? This, these two things. Because he said, look, if we say there is a self, then it leads down this road of like, well, what is it then? What is it made out of? And how does it function? And does it last after death or before death? He's like, don't go there. That's not saying that there is a self leads into bad places. You don't want to go down that road. He's like, it's not helpful. And then he said, similarly, if I say there isn't one, same thing. It's like, well, then nothing is real, and I don't exist, and this doesn't exist. And before you know it, it's a bunch of people philosophizing around the campfire. And he didn't want us to go into either of those directions. So oftentimes, people would say, no, but really, is there a self? He wouldn't. I'm not going to answer. I'm not gonna, you're not going to bait me into answering the question. So the Buddha never said, there is no self. The Buddha never said, there is a self. What he said was, the process of I-making and my-making, the process of identifying things as ours, as mine, as me, creates suffering. Creates suffering. This is mine. You can't have it. Suffering, right? My body, my this, your that. The identification of an I, the creation of an I, which the Buddha calls I-making and my-making, creates suffering for ourselves. 
So not-self is about identity-making and how our sense of self is a form of suffering because it has clinging involved in it, it has attachment, it has aversion and desire. It's not just that I think a, way, think a certain way, it's I have these views, and if your views are not my views, I'm going to get offended and be hurt. Then I'm going to try and change your views because my views are better than yours. And if you just viewed things like I viewed them, we'd all be happy. I would be happy, certainly. And before you know it, it's a bunch of identities competing and conflicting and creating war with each other. So the idea of not-self is, is multifold throughout the teachings. One is, when you're sitting in meditation, do you see a self, a solid, unchanging you can keep trying and you let me know if you find one. The Buddha said he did, could not find some solidity in there that he could say, mine, this is me, absolutely. So he said, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's not about having one or not having one. It's about the moment when you say, I am, or this is mine. Is there dukkha? Right? Is there dukkha in that moment? And where is the dukkha? And is the dukkha in the craving, the clinging, the grasping. So not-self is a tool that we use to let the heart open, right? To let the mind be free of attachment. It's not about a declaration of a truth of something existing or not existing. That's philosophy, and the Buddha was definitely not into that. He definitely wanted us to steer clear of making declarations about essences. Because as soon as you have an essence, then it's like, well, what is it really? And can it, what is it made of? And can I own it? Can I, like, then you're already, you're already in craving and aversion land at that point. And now you're off the path because it's just spiraling. So not self has a bunch of other things to it, but just knowing anicca dukkha anatta, everything is impermanent, including our sense of I, that we mistake for being solid. And the more we want it to be solid, the more we defend it, defend what's mine, defend what's I, more conflict, right? More inner turmoil, more heartbreak, more disappointment. So Anicca, you could also say, and I used to talk about impermanence like this quite a bit, uh, not self, anatta, is just Anicca in the way we experience the I. It's impermanence, but inside right? It's just, it's just, you see how it's impermanent changing, and that's all he's saying, minimally. It's not a big, it doesn't have to be a very complicated process, but you will notice the more wrapped up in I you become, you start to lose perspective of that, right? It feels solid and real, and there's something here to defend and own and argue about and you know, you can, you can see it, you can feel it, right? You know that moment where you get your feelings hurt, right? I am hurt, you hurt me. Like you see that it's, everything becomes solid all of a sudden, you know? And so we start to get in there and you start to see, oh, when I start to look at myself as impermanent and changing, it allows some freedom and some peace in my heart and mind. If I let go of that a little bit, there's a whole doorway of opening into the world where we don't get so attached to, to the process. So Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta are designed, and we'll talk about this later uh, in the next couple weeks, but they're designed as tools, ways of looking at the world. And what we'll talk about in another Dharma talk is how to use them practically. Like, because in different moments, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta might be helpful, but they might not be helpful. They're not always helpful. 
So in certain circumstances, looking at the world as impermanent could completely open you into a sense of spaciousness and compassion. But in another moment, that might not be helpful. You know, that might not be the right thing to be thinking about. You know, like, for example, <laughs> I was in a, uh, I'll just say this, I was in a training thing with a group of Buddhists, and someone in the room was talking about how someone in their family was really hurting. <laughs> and the teacher turned around and said, well, you know, they're not permanent. And it was like the whole, and the person just like, it was just the wrong thing to say for the time. Now, because anicca, dukkha, anatta are ways of looking at the world, and it doesn't, it's not always skillful to look at the world in these ways at all times. And so I'll say one more thing about this, and then we'll pick this up at a later date, but when the Buddha laid out the teachings, there's only two parts of the teachings he said are always, always, always skillful, no matter what. Four Noble Truths, always true and always skillful. In any given moment, it's always skillful to ask yourself, is there suffering here? What is the cause and can I be free from it? He says there's never a moment in your life where that's not helpful in some way. Always, always, always. The other one is not the three characteristics. The other, oh my gosh, what is the other one? Wait, hold on. The Four Noble Truths and Skillful Means, right Doyle? Maybe. I'm going to say skillful means, but I don't know if I'm correct here. Now I can't remember. I know it's not. The, the main thing is it's not the three characteristics. The Four Noble Truths, always skillful. And I think one of them, the other one that he talks about is, in this moment, what is skillful, what is not skillful? Because in any given moment, it's never bad or unskillful to abandon what is harmful and cultivate something that is good. And so when you ask yourself in the moment, is this skillful, is this not skillful, it's, you can't imagine a scenario where someone might say, you know, in this moment, it might, be able, it might be good to cause harm. Just this one time, but we're just gonna cause a little bit of it? Like, that's not really <laughs> the way the Dharma operates. So, but the Buddha says, anicca, dukkha, anatta, they're not always the thing to be focusing on in every gate. Sometimes it can cause harm or suffering to yourself. If you're just like, oh, but it's impermanent, and it's like, well, maybe you need to grieve the law. Like, that's not always this most skillful thing in the moment, right? It's not always the best thing to say to yourself or to, to someone else, right? Not self is not a universal panacea for all pain. So we'll get to that, but it's a misconception that enlightenment is about knowing anicca, dukkha, anatta as true, but the Buddha says they're not always the most truthful and helpful thing to do all the time. They're tools for the awakening. They help us to get awakened, but they're just a part of the path that we're using. Um, I'll explain this at, at a later date, but it's, it's, it's very interesting how the Buddha lays it out. So just a couple other things I wanted to mention about some misconceptions of, of these ideas. A couple big ones, I think, that can be really helpful. The first one is with anicca, impermanence. It's really common. I don't know if this is just in the West or it just, it's because human beings are human beings and this has happened quite a bit in the history of the Dharma. I haven't read enough about this, but I see it a lot because I'm living in the West in North America, so I see this where, where I see it, which is in the West, <laughs> in American Buddhism. It may be other places, but there's this misunderstanding in the Dharma that The goal of the practice is to bring acceptance to impermanence. 
and that if we just accepted that things changed, we could just kind of fall back and be liberated. And, and I'll explain what, what I mean by this. But there is this idea, and you hear this quite a bit, where if we just accept that things are changing, then it'll, it would be all good. The challenge with that, the challenge with that is that what it leads to is this idea that so things change. Because they change, they're unreliable. Because they're unreliable, they cause suffering. What if I were just to accept that, get as much pleasure as I can out of changing phenomenon, and then when they pass, I'll just grieve it in a healthy way. And so I'll try and get as much of the impermanent sensual pleasures as possible. When I have them, I'll celebrate. And when I don't have them, I'll healthfully grieve that they're not there. And that will be, that would be great. But that's not what the instructions are. The instructions are, what if we were to find something that was actually a higher form of happiness, that wasn't conditioned, that was permanent, that was satisfying, satiating, nourishing, and permanent? The Buddha's idea was not to do our best to squeeze as much pleasure out of things that are changing, but to acknowledge that the happiness we get out of them is never fully satiating, and that question whether or not there might be something that is. The whole Buddha's journey that he goes on is to ask himself, is there something that is not conditioned and changing that is a nourishing form of happiness? So enlightenment is considered to be a type of happiness that is lasting, permanent, nourishing, and satiating. Unlike the happiness that arises and passing, passes away from things that are impermanent. So the goal of the path is not to do our best to get the most out of an impermanent thing, but to trade up to something higher in our lives. That's actually what we're trying to do, is to find something that is in fact permanent, unchanging, unconditioned, blameless. And so that is a, a little bit of a shift in oftentimes the way Another reason the Buddha frames the Dharma in that way is because if we just seek out pleasure and accept that it's limited, it becomes a form of spiritual materialism where it's just about, let me see how much pleasure I could get before it goes away. <laughs> and it becomes a type of craving and a type of grasping of, let me just see how much I can get in the shortest period of time before the thing breaks, right? And then I'll try and buy it again. But like, so we're not, we're trying to actually skillfully respond to Anicca with letting go. The skillful act, the very first skillful action of the Dharma is to make an effort to find a higher happiness, a happiness in letting go rather than the grasping and the clinging to the sensual world. That's the very first pleasure of the Dharma is being willing to renounce, right, or let go of this habit we have of thinking the highest pleasure is in the anicca, is in the impermanence. And so it's a little bit awkward when we start to think, oh, how am I approaching this then? How am I approaching a higher form of happiness? So remember that mindfulness is a form of letting go because what we're letting go of is mindlessness, right? So the moment we say, I want to be mindful, we're letting go of the wandering mind doing whatever the heck it wants. We're saying, I'm choosing to be present, which means I'm letting go of the crazy, impermanent, wandering mind that's just doing whatever the heck it wants, right? We're making a declaration 
that I'm going to show up in relationship to the world in a particular way. And in that presence, there's a pleasure that lies beyond something that is conditioned. So it can get complicated from there. But just so you know, the goal is not to squeeze the most out of impermanence. It's to find something higher, more satiating, more nourishing than the things that arise and pass away and get broken. It doesn't mean we don't participate in them, especially as householders, but we are, our sights are set above Anicca, right? We're above Anicca, not inside of it. We're not trying to make the best. I think it was Achan Cha said, when you do that, you're just decorating your jail cell, right? You want to get out. <laughs> the idea is to be free, not to make the prison more comfortable as long as you're in it. Like that's the idea is to get out. The goal is to be liberated into a happiness and a joy that is beyond. So we can talk about that another time, but that's how sometimes we misunderstand the impermanent part. And it's easy to do because who wants to let go of stuff? There's so much, so much fun. No, we don't really want to like let go of things. We want to kind of look at the Dharma and say, but maybe I can make it permanent and satisfying if I just rearrange the pieces differently, right? So we jump right back in to the dukkha and the craving and the clinging by, oh yeah, wow, it's impermanent and changing. I probably shouldn't be attached. But I'm going to try to be attached just one more time just to see if it'll be satisfying. <laughs> just one, this time it's going to work. I'm going to grasp just this one more time and it's going to be workable. So we want to let go. We don't want to keep grasping. So bringing this all together, the three characteristics, also known as the three perceptions. When we call them characteristics, it can be misleading because it makes it sound like it's like the characteristic of this, you know, podium thingy is solid, it's real, right? It's, it's this thing. But the three characteristics are the way we relate to the, it's a relationship again. I relate to the world as if it's impermanent. I relate to this as not self. I relate to this moment as dukkha. So it's a relatedness, right? They're tools that we use to engage the world. Um, so they're also called perceptions because they're, they're a process. They're the way that we engage reality. And we're encouraged to engage reality in that way because it opens doors to the heart and the mind and allows us to decrease suffering. Um, and then the second thing, like, like we were saying earlier, is just remembering that impermanence goes way down. The well of wisdom for impermanence goes all the way down from the superficial changing of reality to the unreliability. And again, the lack of reliability means that the pleasure in a world in flux is never fully satisfying. We need another hit. We need another hit. It just because it's impermanent. Pleasure is not permanent in materiality. So we keep having to have more to get because it goes away, <laughs> right? Like I always like to joke, you're never going to Find that one TV show that's so satisfying that you never watch TV again. <laughs> because it's not per the pleasure's not permanent, right? Netflix would never live in a world where it was nirvana because it ha pleasure has to be fleeting for that to work, right? Otherwise, when that little timer goes on your screen, it's like, do you want to watch another one? It's like, yeah, of course I want to watch another one because I'm already... The previous pleasure of the previous episode is gone. It's been like six seconds. Like I want, I, I need some, so you know, like it doesn't work that way. So the lack of reliability is about the pleasure. The pleasure isn't reliable. It comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. So instead of trying to get it when it's there and hold on to it and then be okay with it leaving, the Buddha's like, why don't we just find one that's just there and nourishing? Like what if there is one that's like permanent and satisfying? How about we fall into that 
and see what that does. So that's kind of the difference there. Uh, and again, dukkha. You can translate it as stress or friction or discontent. It doesn't have to be suffering in the big picture of turmoil and apocalyptic experience. Um, and not self. Again, not self. It's not about saying I don't exist or you don't exist or do we exist. How am I identifying with what's arising and passing away in my heart and mind? And how am I identifying with what's outside of myself? And the process of feeling me, I, me, mine, is there suffering there? That's what, they, that's what we're asking ourselves. In that sense of being I, do you notice suffering? Oftentimes when students get more mature in practice, they'll report this experience. They'll say, I notice the moment the sense of self arises, I can feel the contraction of the, as soon as it, I, contraction of the heart, like they can feel the contraction. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can see why it, you suddenly see as soon as it's like me, oh, psh, contraction, right? There's a contraction. Identity making is dukkha. And that's the doorway to a, a great relief uh, of the heart and mind. So thanks for your attention. Nice to be back. Important stuff in the Dharma. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Let's do a little bit of metta before we leave. just return to the body and the breath. Noticing what lights up in awareness in this moment. Noticing shape and form. Notice that you're sitting in a room taking up space. that you can hear sounds. Notice feelings in the body. Maybe noticing a thought or two racing by. Let's thank ourselves for the practice of this evening. And maybe wish that all beings share in the merits of our practice. We might extend some gratitude to everyone in this room and everyone online in our digital Dharma hall for joining us, creating this space for practice. Gratitude for the generosity and the presence of these beings. attuned to our heart, bring some awareness to the part of the body called the heart. Just notice how it feels in this moment. Awake and aware to embodied being. 
this being that thinks and feels and loves. And let's remind ourselves that although we practice for our own awakening, that our highest aspiration is that all beings be free. And that we may find some joy and even privilege in playing a role in bringing some kindness, some joy, and some compassion to this world. And that it's our practice that allows us to do just that. We might conclude this evening by asking ourselves this question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what might you wish for? Offer that wish to the world with each in and out breath. Be well, my friends. You're welcome. Yeah, see you next week. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.